I want to talk with you this morning about book, chapter, and verse. I, uh, I know this subject for many of you will be seem like repetitive or something simple. And others, it'll be a brand new concept or idea. And I, I, I understand that, but so we'll, we'll kind of go through this, uh, this thought process together, what book, chapter, and verse means. I think the original, the original idea usually is called book, chapter, and verse preaching. In fact, I'm looking at some notes by a brother, Andy Sokor, who wrote about this. I don't want you to blame him for what I say this morning. He's not responsible for that. But, uh, he, he calls it book, chapter, verse preaching. But I, I don't want to call it that for this reason. I don't think it's about just preaching. I, I think, Christians need to have this concept in their mind when they think about how they're going to live and what they're going to believe in their life. What does the Bible say? And can I go to book, chapter, and verse in the Bible and and somehow establish what I'm saying I believe or what is right to do for the church or for me to do? And that concept needs to be with us. And we've talked about this in a lot of different ways in different contexts and probably going to use some familiar scriptures that we've used before. I, I don't, I'm not going to make any apology about that. Sometimes I think this subject needs to be talked about. But let's go first to a passage here in the book of Nehemiah, which may not be familiar to you. Now, of course, the context of Nehemiah 8 is in general. The people, Israel has been, and Judah have been destroyed, taken away into captivity. The Judeans, the Jews there around Jerusalem, have spent 70 years in captivity in Babylon, Babylon, and now God has allowed them to return to the land. And they have rebuilt the walls of the city, and they have rebuilt God's temple. And they're really ready to offer up, you know, get op- operate the sacrifices again. During this time, they discovered a scroll of the book of the law. You know, when you go back and read some of the things, I haven't had the verses in front of me to look at this morning for sake of time. When you go back and you read some of the dates events that are given, you re- you realize that the Hebrews, the Jews, hardly ever kept the law of Moses. Hardly for any length of time at all. They always did what they wanted to do. A few did, perhaps, but most did not. And there were long periods of time when they didn't even know where the Ark of the Covenant was. They forgot where it even was, much less gave it any honor and, and, offer, and, and uh, did sacrifices in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't even know where it was. And then you find many years, David didn't even know how to move it from one place to the other. And God struck a man dead, Uzzah, until David went back and found the scroll and looked up what they were supposed to be doing. And, and then he realized how he should have done it. It was all right there, but they had just abandoned God's word. And then you see periods of time when they hadn't kept the Passover at all for generations. So don't think that they were always doing these things because they weren't. They were pretty much like people today. They talked about God, they had their own ideas about it, but they did what they wanted to do. Amen. With some semblance of religion involved in that. And that's what, But Nehemiah wasn't that kind of fellow. He wasn't going to get things started back off in the land again now that God had brought the remnant back, a faithful remnant back, without any guidance. So he found the book of the law, and he gathered the people together, it says. And so now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And this is where Watergate comes from, by the way. For the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, all who could hear with understanding, not the little children, on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, 
before the men, the women, and those who can understand. And the ears of all the people were attended to the book of the law. There it is. They hadn't heard this in their lifetime. They were trying to do what was right. And so now when the law began to be read, they paid attention. Some of you have had that experience. You, you've lived your life the way you want to, walked away from God, and then something goes on in your life and God blesses you with that and you realize, I, I need to know how to do what I'm supposed to do. And so when you begin to read the Bible, then the words come into your heart. They have impact on you. They mean something to you because you want to know. People, a lot of people sit in places like this from the time the little children hear the words and they don't mean anything to them because they haven't made up their mind they need to pay attention. So Ezra the scribe stood on the platform. Here's this platform, see? On this platform of wood which they had made for that purpose. And Ezra opened the book of the side, in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, or so be it, so be it. Let this, let this, these words be true. While lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with all their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua and Donai and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shebathai and Hojiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebel. You know, my daughter's going to have a new baby. These are, I need to point her to this verse for some names. This would be a good one. Hanan and Peliah and all the Levites. They helped the people understand the law. So they were out in the audience and he was reading and maybe pausing and the, these, these men who knew what they were hearing, they were trying to explain a little bit about what they were hearing. And the people stood in their place. And so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. I think that, verse 8, is the purpose of public preaching like this. I've tried to remember this verse. That's the purpose of public preaching. It isn't just to read a text, but it is to read the text distinctly and clearly so people understand it and then try to give a sense of what that means right now for us in our time as we're living and then help understand this reading. That's the point of preaching. It isn't just reading. It's a little more than that. And people can understand what they read, but sometimes they have trouble making that transition from what they're reading to what they ought to be doing. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. That's powerful. These people have not heard this. And you know what they, you know why they wept? Partly because there's a joy in hearing what God says. There's joy. But sometimes when you read and hear what God says, there's great pain too because you realize that's not me. I haven't done that at all. They realized they had been negligent and disobedient. But these people God had selected to come back from Babylon because they had the right kind of hearts. And so when they heard God's word, they wept. The Bible says, and we'll quote later, that some hear the word, they receive it with joy. And then here the joy turns into mourning. When the book, when the prophecy, uh, the Spirit of God came to Ezekiel, there in, before this time in, ba- in Babylon, it said that he took the scroll that God gave him and symbolically and ate it and it, it was bitter in his mouth. It, it should, excuse me. It was sweet in his mouth. But later he went away in bitterness. So when you hear the word of God, it's sweet. This is right. This is good. 
And then you think about it some more and you realize, I failed. And I need to do something about that. It's bitter. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat. There it is. What's the good part of the food? What's the part that God says, it's good, eat it? The fat, drink the sweet. We're totally opposite of that, by the way. The good part of the sacrifice was the fat. That's a good part of the meat, apparently. Don't. I believe God's word, by the way. And send portions for those whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So go away from here, hearing the word of God. Go rejoice in your homes. Because now the word of God's been read. Your lives can be different. We can be different. So the Levites quieted all the people from their mourning and crying and be still for the day, this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. This is a powerful moment in the history of Israel when the word of God was read again and they, they realized what they needed to do. They understood from the raw that was read what the words of God were for the first time maybe in their lives. What is, what is meant by book, chapter, and verse, or by preaching that involves book, chapter, and verse? Well, first of all, it means preaching that attempts to accurately represent the truth of God's Word. It's, a, it's preaching that says, this is a text, this is the text, these are other texts, and this is what it means accurately. Not trying to take a philosophy like Marxism, or socialism, or uh, transcendentalism, or whatever it is, and place that on the Bible so people can pick out a few verses here and there and they can get the point that you want to make about it. It's not inventing the point that you want to make. That's why a lot of times I don't have three points in my sermon because the Bible makes five points. So guess guess what we're going to have? We're going to have five points. That's what you're supposed to get. I did a sermon series on uh, uh, identifying the New Testament church or recreating the New Testament church and I freaked him out the first time. Well, this sermon has 11 points. Why 11? Well, because that's how many points I got from the text that were right there clear in front of me. Uh, I tried that once or twice in the same sermon. It didn't work out too well because it was long, but now we break it down a little bit. But preaching should attempt to accurately represent the truth of God's Word. And when you read, your thought should be, what is the point? Not that I want to get it. Not, not what's the point that I want today. What do I need today for me? The point is, what is God's word saying here for me in this case? Now, that's important for you that day. Whatever it is that you're reading. That's called exegesis, getting out of the Bible what's in there, not putting your thoughts into the Bible, which is what most preaching seems like is done over time. That's what people do. It also seeks to prove its truthfulness by citing specific passages, book, chapter, and verse, and explaining those passages. So when I make a proposition, I make a statement up here, about what we should do with the Lord's Supper. I will try to present to you some texts from the Bible that you can read to verify what I've said about that and what we ought to do. It's a simple idea. But I can tell you that lots and lots of churches don't practice that at all. They don't even understand the concept. They've got their tradition, their book of this and book of that and and so forth, and they're going to go by that. And the Bible comes into it. They can put some Bible verses in there, sprinkle them in. But it's not a matter of saying, what does this text say and what are we supposed to do about that? And so we will hear, if we can, God give us the power to do that, try to take whatever statement is being made and try to prove its truthfulness 
not by citing an expert somewhere on something or theologian, but by looking at specific Bible passages, long or short, various ones, put them together, and say, this is what the truth is. I hope that you expect that in the preaching that comes from this pulpit, whether by me or anybody else. I hope you expect that from any Bible teacher that you listen to. And if you're not hearing that, you need to find somebody else to listen to, or at least evaluate them that way. There are people that don't do this. They have interesting things to say. But um, they're not really doing book, chapter, verse preaching. And then it allows the hearer to locate the passages under consideration and see them for themselves. I think there's great value in you looking at it for yourself. Whether when I went, like when I was young, you'd hear the pages of the Bible turning in the church and preachers would comment about that. I find that that was somewhat distracting because some of these preachers use 50 verses in a sermon and people spend more time trying to turn it than they are listening to what's being said. <clears throat> but on the other hand, if you're not going to do that, I do want you to look up here and see the scripture that we're looking, talking about in front of you. Sometimes you can't all put the whole context. I'll try to explain it, but you be sure, to, if you want to, to write that down so you can look later for yourself about what that means. Years ago when I would preach, I might refer to this passage. And I would tell people, don't turn there because we're only going to be there a second. But when we turn to this place, now we're going to be here a while. You turn there and we'll look at it with me. You can see that. Uh, this machinery here changed that a little bit. But still the attempt should be made to show you where the Scriptures say what it is. So up here, for example, on the ones we just looked at, I have in English the Bible reference, and after that I have the Spanish book name and the, and the French book name for those who speak Creole, maybe more comfortable looking up in their native language. So that all of you can look for the most part and see where in your Bible it says this, either by looking now or by looking for it later. You'll know where it is. And then you can have confidence that that's right, I believe that. Not because he said it, but because I read it in the Bible for myself. This is important. It's essential. If we're going to recreate the New Testament church, this is essential as a background. Now, understanding this, I do want you to understand something that may be taken for granted. The, the, the Bible division into chapters and verses, since we're referring to book, chapter, and verse. Yes, the Bible has 66 books that come down to us as being inspired and, and uh, from the apostles and prophets and so forth. In, origi- in the original languages, there aren't any demarcations, except maybe in the book of Psalms, in the different chapters. That's put in there by human beings much later. You see this modern chapter division were made by Archbishop Stephen Langton in Paris in 1204 and 1205. That's pretty good. That's a long time from Christ, a long time from now. The la- there have been other attempts at this been made, but nothing had ever been accepted as general standard. And when the Bible began to be translated into, uh, into English and so forth, or into the Latin, you see people trying to make a standard marking of chapters. And so it was done, the division to chapters was introduced in 1226 in the English edition of the Vulgate, or edition of the Vulgate known as the Paris Bible. So uh, it was finally kind of formalized in, a, in, in the Vulgate in 1226. And then the modern division to verses was not made till later by Robert Stephanus or Robert Stn. The pro, he's a printer in 1551. wasn't even a, particularly a theologian. Etienne's system was widely adopted and is found in almost all modern Bibles. The first English Bible, uh, sorry about the word English being twice there, to use both chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible, published in 1560, which is an extremely important English translation. So you see it's been relatively recent. Why'd they do this? They're not inspired. God didn't give their chapters and verses, but they're there so you can go back and find it 
Sometimes I want to find something that C.S. Lewis said or somebody else I've read, and I got to, you know, if I can't remember, I got thumbed through whole big pages and stuff. Or now with computers, you just search for a phrase. If you're right, you can find it if you can get it on the computer. But but it's still a searching process. And so the chapters and verses were given so people could quickly go back and find an, a part of a text that they wanted to read, whether it was a whole chapter, whether specific, easy for me to say, a specific verse that could do that. So anyway, that's the nature of that. Now, what you got to understand to appreciate the idea of book, chapter, and verse is you have to understand that the Bible is the truth. Without that belief, you can look up verses, but it's no more, no different than I've got some uh, copies of the works of William Shakespeare that have all the all the ref, all the paragraphs and sentences numbered and so forth, just as a reference system. Well, it's just for academics. The Bible's not about academics. It's about learning, but it's not about academics. Psalm 119 says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The entirety of God's word is truth. Even the parts of the Old Testament that were laws given to the Jews teach us something that we need to understand about God and about what he thought. Everything, it all has to be put together in that fashion. And so the New Testament tells us to rightly divide the word of truth. Be able to distinguish the different parts of it, what they mean and how they go together. But to understand the whole Bible is truth. So it's important for you to be able to go back and find in the text what you know is there and refer to that. And then sometimes look ahead and beyond that to see. When I give a verse here, if you have time to look at it, you should kind of look, look ahead the verse and behind the verse, see where we're at. Jesus said the same type of thing when he said in John 17 to his disciples, sanctify them in your truth, speak prayer to God, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. God's words coming down to us through the scriptures is the truth, it's something we need to understand, so it tells us how to live our life, what's good and bad, tells us about God, how to be saved, a lot of other things about life that we need, it's truth, and all of it goes together, and so that's why it's important for you to realize this. You don't have to go to some Baptist manual or some Methodist discipline to find out the truth. You have a Bible. That's where you need to go. Now, you also see this reference in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul is exhorting this younger man to remember where he learned the scriptures from from the time he was a child. His mother and grandmother taught him this, but he says, you've known the holy scriptures from the time you were a child, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Where does Paul send this young man? He doesn't say, uh, I got the Holy Spirit, come talk to me. He could say that. But he tells him, knowing he won't be there forever, and he can't always speak to him, he says you can go to, uh, the scriptures he's talking about here are the Old Testament for one thing. And later, later we find Paul's writings called Scripture by Peter and other places like that because the same Holy Spirit was giving all of these. It's useful to do many things because it's God breathed it or gave it to us. The word inspiration is an interesting word because in English, inspire means to breathe in. The word that's used in Greek means to breathe out. The idea here in Greek is that God breathed out the Scriptures from His mouth, as it were. It's His Word is breathed out on the people. We use inspiration in that God breathed his wisdom or truth into the scriptures. It's kind of a backwards concept. But what it means is that the scriptures come from God. And that's for the purpose that the man of God, whoever it is that wants to serve God, 
can be complete. He doesn't need anything else. He doesn't have to wait to have his Cheerios in the morning and say his prayer before he can find out what God wants him to do and listen for some small voice somewhere. The Scriptures make you complete to understand what God needs you to do. He also said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, I charge you, speaking to Timothy again, the word charge here is I put you under an oath, as it were, a solemn promise before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead and his appearing in kingdom. Preach the word. I so appreciate Brother Fred saying, preach the word to me when I stand up here to preach. I don't know if you hear him or not. It means a lot to me because it focuses me on what I'm supposed to be doing. Preach God's word, not just what Mike thinks, although what I think is brilliant, of course, and you need that, but God's word is the thing. And preach the word. Be ready in season. Out of season. Be ready to preach when it's convenient, easy, and everybody wants to hear it. Be ready out of season when it doesn't go well and people don't want to hear you and it's difficult. Exhort, re- convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. But preach the word. That's what it is. Not what a scholar says about it. Not some fascinating thought. Don't get some idea that you got. And then say, well, where in the Bible can I find some verses that will make this work? So you go in the Bible and you find a few verses that kind of fit that. You play, you ever, when you play charades, or play charades, I'm sure you have, and you go like this. What's that mean? Sounds like. So you go find a few verses that sound like what you want to teach. Play charades with the Bible. No. Find out what it says. Get it out of there. So the Bible in Psalm 119 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Ever seen that bumper sticker years ago? I think if I can quote it right, it says, uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I thought, that's wrong. That's, that's wrong. I know, I know I fooled you on this one, but it's wrong. Here's what it should say. It won't make a good bumper sticker. What it should say is, God said it, that settles it. I believe it. Your belief doesn't have anything to do whether it's truth or not or whether it's settled or not, does it? Because it's settled whether you believe it or not. If God has said His word, if Peter had preached on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized for the mission of sins, and not one person responded, God's word would have still been true. That would have still been exactly what God intended, and it would have had exactly the result that God intended. Because His word is settled in heaven. So we can't alter it. We shouldn't think of ourselves in some way that we get to do that. The word is settled. We gotta, we're trying to figure out what that means. And then in 1 Peter 1, it says, verse 24, because all flesh is as grass, and, all, and the, all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. All this glory, you see. We can split genes and get the, get the uh, g- genome of all these animals, the human beings. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We can go to, the, go to Mars and walk around. All the stuff man can do is so great. All great. I love all that. But all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and his flower falls away. But, there's the important word in the Bible. There's one of the most important words in all the Bible. But, the word of the Lord endures forever. Books, preaching book, chapter, and verse, and dealing with the book, chapter, and verse as a way of living and thinking about the Bible, Christ, is a divine obligation. This isn't something made up by preachers in the 1700s or whatever you want to say about this. Oh, that's just that old... Restoration preaching and, and, uh, this man-made idea. No! This is a Bible idea. Didn't have anything to do with Alexander Campbell or whoever else you may think it does. 
It's a divine obligation. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 1, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. The oracle of God is what God has revealed. If I want to speak about anything that has to do with God or anything holy, I need to speak as what, by what God has said. If any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. Not his own fault. You want to serve, you want to do good for other people, then do it the way God says to do it in the manner and for the purpose. That all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So it's important. It's a divine obligation. And then we have in Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, but God has revealed them, what the, the, the deep things of God, as it were. God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. God's Spirit breathed out the Scriptures and He's revealed them to us. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. What man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. I do not believe in, in uh, ESP where I can transfer my thoughts to other people or they can I can read other people's minds. The Bible says right here, no one knows the thoughts of a man, what's inside a man, except that man himself. Unless what? Unless he speaks them. You have no idea what I'm thinking about right now. I'm thinking about a purple giraffe. You have no idea about that. I just told you. But that's what it is. Because see, when you're like me, you can speak out one thing, think about another, and you know, uh, at the same time. Don't you do that? You do it all the time. You just don't realize it. But we don't know what's inside the other. And just, and so he says here, no one knows God's mind unless God has spoken to him about it. And God's word, God's word has been revealed in the spirit to it. So therefore we can know what's in God's mind. I got an article somewhere here. I think it's down there. Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son. I think I mentioned that this morning. It's hard to think of it. Jesus would have wanted, would have taken the COVID-19 vaccine. Jesus. Jesus would have taken the COVID-19 vaccine and he wants you to do that. Okay. I got no problem. You want to get a vaccine? Get a vaccine. You don't want to get a vaccine? Don't get a vaccine. It matters not. I just wonder how Franklin Graham figured that out, what Jesus would have done and what Jesus wants you to do about a COVID-19. How did he figure that out? Oh, he's so religious. He's such a wise religious. He's Billy Graham's son. He's got all these ministries. Well, I still don't think he can read God's mind. He certainly doesn't know what Jesus thought about it unless Jesus told him about it. And I don't believe Jesus told him about that. So, get the vaccine if you want to. Get it if you believe Franklin Graham, but don't believe that Jesus would have done it. I don't know what Jesus would have done about the vaccine. He didn't tell me. And so since this says, I don't know the things of God unless he tells me, then I don't know. You can bring some principles to bear. What about this? What about that? What about the other? Of course, he also said, maybe Jesus wouldn't want you to take in the vaccine that comes from a aborted baby. So I, you know, now, now, now you're going another whole direction. I thought Jesus would have done it. It's tiresome sometimes. It's tiresome when people that should know better say things expressed that way as if they can read Jesus' mind when he's not, when his word does not tell me what that is. That state, that bumper sticker, what would Jesus do? Is better off to be a bumper sticker that says, what did Jesus do? Now I can get my teeth into that. 
because the Bible tells you what he did and what he believed. Now let's go from there and figure out some of the things. But just making up your, oh, I think Jesus would do this because Jesus loves every, okay, all that stuff is made up. It might be good, it might be right, it might be wrong. But how do I know what God says? Book, chapter, and verse. That's how I know what God says. And let's stay on that. And, and the truth is, that covers everything. The principles are all there. It's not like we're left in the dark about these things. But stop telling me what God thinks about COVID vaccines. At least that God implying, you know, since you're Billy Graham's son, you get to say that. Here's the other thing about it. Real quickly here. We've got a couple more things to go here. We read this parable a couple weeks ago. But I, th- I think book, chapter, and verse preaching and the whole idea is an appeal to the good and honest heart. Now, that may seem a stretch, but I want you to think about that. I didn't think of this point. Andy Socor did, but I, I like this point. It's an appeal to a good and honest heart. Because we have the seed of the Word of God. That's what Jesus says in, in Luke 8, 11, this parable he told. A man sowing seed on the ground. Some seed fell here, some fell there. And he says this, the, the seed's the Word of God being sown in the world. And some goes by the wayside, they'd hear it, but before they can even do anything about it, they don't care about it, and the birds take it away. They they can't believe and be saved because they don't pay any attention to it. Some falls on the rock, and there are those who receive it with joy, but they don't have any root, and they believe for a while, and they fall away. The Word of God isn't essential to them. They fall away because they don't have any root. And then there are those who um, fall, falls among thorns, and they hear, and they try to grow, but all their love of money and riches and prestige and doing what the culture says to do that's important, all that chokes out the word, and they never bruise any fruit. But then there's the word that falls on a good and honest heart. That person hears the word with a noble and good heart and keeps it and bears fruit. Now, what's this saying here? This is saying that... If you hear the Bible and you understand what the book, chapters, and verse say about things, if you have a good and honest heart, that's going to be an appeal to you. That's going to mean something to you. You're not going to let it slip away. You're not going to ignore it. It's going to have power in your life to bring forth fruit. So the preaching of the gospel the right way and the reading of the gospel the right way will sort out those who have a good and honest heart from those who don't over time. One day you might be one, one day you might be another. But I think also, Book, chapter, and verse, that whole idea is the only way forward for society and for you. There's only one way forward, and that's through the Word of God. Now, I know that God doesn't tell the governments of the nations what to do about every issue, and I don't think that He speaks on every issue that way. But some things, generally speaking, we can figure out and we can know. What Jesus said, for example, about society is He went around teaching in Judea. He was healing sickness. But when he saw the multitudes, verse 36 of John of Matthew 9, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. This is where we are today, have always been, and it's really apparent today that when you look at society, as angry or disgusted as you might get at some of the things people say and do, immoral things like the Grammys, really it deserves our compassion. Because people are like sheep without a shepherd. When you dance like those two ladies did, and I watched the video, because that's just the kind of guy I am, research, you know, of the twerking and all the other stuff of the WAP. You can look that up too. I know what that is. When you look at that, 
And what did come out of that? Imitating all the sex acts and all the things. I mean, I, don't, I can't. You look up the lyrics of that song. For young, beautiful women to sing that in public and do what they, and I'm all for sex. Don't get me wrong. That's not the point about this. To do that in public is a sad thing. It's a sad thing that shows they have no sheep. Their sheep are not a shepherd. And especially if they think, somehow this is empowering the women. You know what most of the men listen to that are saying? Bring on the power, girls. You think it's empowering the women? Men love that kind of power that women have. It's degrading to them. They get to use them instead of empowered. They're doing exactly the opposite of what they think they're doing. It's sad. Discouraging. But the only way forward out of that morass of immorality and de- degradation and in the eventual true sexism is going to come from that is the Word of God, which teaches us how to be men and women that respect each other, put sex where it belongs in the proper place and enjoy God's blessings all the time in the right way and teach us how to talk to one another and how to look at each other. All of that's in the God, Word of God. It's not going to be found in rap lyrics or at the Grammys. Because they're sheep without a shepherd. You take the issue of race. But I've had to deal with most all my adult life. Well, I have all my adult life, especially all my life as a preacher. Had to deal with this issue head on all the time in various ways. So I wasn't born yesterday on that issue. I haven't thought about it, just starting to think about it yesterday. Oh yeah, I know we need to have a conversation. I've been having conversations for 50 years about that subject in real places in all different formats about conversation. We need to start a conversation. That conversation started a long time ago. The only way forward is not critical race theory where one race gets to accentuate how it's oppressed or how it's this way, how this one's better, how that one's worse, and make sure everybody feels good or bad. That's not the way forward. The way forward is all men are of one blood that God made. And we learn however difficult it is, how much we fail to treat each person as an individual made in God's image, and we treat them that way. That's the way forward. That doesn't win any political points these days, though. You can't base an, a theory of, of oppression and power, like Marx did, on that. Because Jesus and Marx are totally opposite of one another. So, And the socialism that Hitler built, the National Socialist Party, is totally opposite of what the Bible said, based on Friedrich Nietzsche, who believed that there were superior races comes out of Darwin and his evolution. So all these ideas are not the way forward for human beings, for us to be able to live and get along and love each other in a society. So the gospel, reading what the Bible says about this issue, is the way forward. And it's the way forward for you. Even in Jesus' lifetime, some of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. When they heard him teaching hard things, they didn't want to be around. And so he said to the twelve, will you also go away? Do you also want to go away? And Peter Mr. Loudmouth Peter, for all people criticize him, he spoke up and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You can criticize Peter, but there it is. Even that ignorant fisherman knew that there's only one way forward for him as an individual, and that's through Jesus Christ. He had no other place to go to go forward and to live his life and to get to heaven than through Jesus Christ. Because we've come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He knew that for him, that was the only way forward. I think a lot of you may have made that decision in your life already. That for you, the only way forward is through Jesus Christ. Well, if you're going to believe that, then you've got to know what he says and what he, what he wants you to do and think and believe and be. And the only way you know that 
is through the scriptures. I had to call up the radio show. I used to do a call-in show, West Palm, for church down there years ago. And she called in two or three times. But she was trying to make the point that she really, she really believed in Jesus, but she didn't believe in all this miracle stuff and all these, you know, stories like Jonah and the whale and all that kind of stuff. She believed in Jesus, but she didn't believe in that. Who do you think said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so will Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights? Who said that? She didn't want the Bible, she said. She believed in God and Jesus, but didn't want the Bible. Well, I tried to tell her, how do you know anything about Jesus if not through the Bible? You say you know all this stuff about Jesus, you want to follow him. You wouldn't know one thing he said from secular history if it weren't for the Bible. We know he existed from eight or nine sources back then, but we don't know what he said and what he was about and how he could save people. So if you say you want Jesus but not the Bible, you can't get Jesus outside the Bible. He's not there. And you don't get to pick and choose what you believe about Jesus either. That was the whole point of this passage here. Jesus said things they didn't like and so they walked away. Today, Jesus says things people don't like and guess what? They walk away. And they can't be saved. It's a hard thing. It's the way it is. So Paul said, uh, books, chapter, and verse preaching, by the way, I'm sorry, we'll finish this up real quick here. But book, chapter, and verse teaching and preaching and belief is the, is the way the Holy Spirit does God's work on us. People want the Holy Spirit. You should. It's God's gift. But the Holy Spirit is nothing, uh, nothing, well, it's more. It, it, it's the Word of God brought to you. The Spirit's what brings God's word from his mind to you. It goes through the revelation in the minds of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ to you. And that's the important thing about it. That's how God does the work in you. People are waiting for some still small voice or miraculous thing. The Spirit is working in you by reading the word. In my case, it's taken a lifetime for the Spirit to get through about many of these things. I don't think he still got through about a few things. I can't figure it out. But some people, some brains and hearts are harder than others. But the Spirit keeps chipping away by those words that my mother put in my brain when I was a little boy. Still chipping away at me, beating on me. And then things I read last week that are chipping away at me. That's how the Holy Spirit's working. It's, behind, it's quiet, it's slow, it's behind the scenes. Let the Word of Christ come. How, how do we get the Word of Christ? Through the Spirit of God, that's how. Dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's accomplished through the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 3, how that by revelation, to, through God directly speaking to Paul, how that by revelation He made known to me as an apostle, Paul says, the mystery, as I've written before already, which by when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit, to it, not to you at your kitchen table, it's been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. Amen. There it is. Believe it or not, as Rupi would say. That's how the Spirit, you want the Holy Spirit, then let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not just superficially, but richly over time. Turn to God. Yes, pray. All the time. But pray about what you've read and heard and let that, and pray that God would make this, you see this and make you able to do this. Because that's how 
Paul says, I wrote it down briefly what God gave me, and you can read it and you can understand it, and it can change your life. That's why he says in Romans 12, I beseech you by the mercy of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Every day you're doing this. Do not be conformed to this world by its ideas, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This renewal takes place in the mind by the word of God being there and so forth. And so Paul, John can say, Jesus says in John 5, 38, but you do not have this word abiding in you, speaking to the Pharisees, because whom he sent you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they that testify of me. Well, our time is gone today, far, far gone. But I appreciate, and I, but I do appreciate you listening to what we had to say and hope that you'll consider these things as something that you need to do something about or at least to begin to appreciate how much it means to, to read the scriptures for yourself, to listen to teaching about that and let those words come into your heart because that's where the power is. So it's important that we go by book, chapter, and verse. Our brother, um, Joel is going to sing number 584 now as an invitation song, softly and tenderly, to give you a chance to respond to the gospel of Christ. Perhaps this morning you need to be baptized into Christ. If so, we can help you with that this very hour. All you've got to do is come to the front. We'll baptize you into Christ today. All the water's ready. The clothes are ready. Everything is ready. If your heart's ready and you believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son, you want to repent and confess Him as God's Son, then you can be baptized and become a Christian today. And then let the Holy Spirit come into you and let Him begin to work on your life through His Word. I urge you to do that if you need to. And this morning you can also receive God's blessing by letting your brothers and sisters pray with you today about whatever sin or problem or difficulty, trouble that you're going through. Come here up the front. We'll pray with you about those things. Your brothers and sisters can pray with you. And you can be blessed by doing so. You can be forgiven if you've done wrong. So come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.